The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hamelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Mr. Dennis Olson. He is a senior research associate and policy analyst for the United Food and Commercial Workers International Union, where he advises the director of the Meatpacking Division on Food, Agriculture, and Trade Policies. He is also on the National Campaign Committee for the Center for Good Food Purchasing, which supports local coalitions in several cities working to convince public institutions to implement the Good Food Purchasing Program, which we'll get into. Mr. Olson represents the United Food and Commercial Workers and the National Poultry Workers Coalition, which successfully opposed a USDA proposal to increase line speeds in poultry plants. He has represented UFCW and International Food Workers Union through the civil society mechanism of the United Nations Committee for Food Security. And in that role, he advocated for measures to protect the human rights of migrant workers and address threats posed to food workers by antibiotic-resistant bacteria and curtail the buyer power abuse in global food supply chains. Mr. Olson led the UFCW engagement in the historic 2010 USDA Justice Department investigation into whether more antitrust enforcement was needed in agricultural markets, and he co-authored a UFCW report titled Ending Walmart's Rural Stranglehold. Previously, Mr. Olson worked at the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy, where he led initiatives addressing issues related to the World Trade Organization's Agreement on Agriculture, NAFTA, and other free trade agreements. He also has worked with organizing farmers, ranchers, and other conservationists on the northern Great Plains, advocating for responsible mineral extraction, stronger antitrust enforcement, fair farm prices, and farm credit reforms. Welcome, Mr. Olson. It's great to have you with me. Well, thank you for having me. I'm really curious about how you became interested in farm labor and union work in your history. Tell me about how you got to where you are today. Well, that's a good question. I guess I would have to go back to actually when I was in high school living in Livingston, Montana, and there were proposals from the federal government and massive energy companies to build probably 36 coal generating plants across the northern Great Plains and make it a national sacrifice area for energy independence. And one of the consequences of that would be building a dam called the Allen Spur Dam on on the mouth of the Paradise Valley, which is where I lived in Livingston, Montana. So I was worried about that in high school. I eventually went to work for the Northern Plains Resource Council, which organized farmers and ranchers to challenge this plan to make the the Great Plains a national sacrifice area for energy independence. And so you had these Republican, conservative, agrarian farmers and ranchers in eastern Montana 
band together and form alliances with an environmentalist in western Montana and pass landmark environmental legislation to curtail the impacts of coal mining. So, for example, Montana was the first state in the union to actually require coal mines to reclaim, and they did quite a few other landmark stuff back in those days. That was before I got there, but that was what got me interested. By the time I got there, I actually started working for their sister organization in North Dakota. During the 1980s farm crisis, we tried to help farmers fight farm foreclosures, which were rampant at that time. And we always also fought for fair farm prices and a fair farm bill. And then I actually went back to Montana and continued to work to protect ranchers and farmers from the impacts of coal mining, hard rock mining, coal bed methane development, that sort of thing. And also from that work spun, they began to work on other issues like the farm bill and trying to get antitrust enforcement against the big meat packers for cattle ranchers for them to get a fair price. And we also opposed the North American Free Trade Agreement. So that's what sort of got me into the agricultural realm. And from there, I went to work for the Institute for Ag and Trade Policy, where I continued to work on those issues. And really, it was that history of working in the progressive farm movement is why the United Food and Commercial Workers, probably the biggest reason why they hired me, they were looking for someone with that kind of expertise. And so I fit the bill, I guess, and ended up coming here in 2009 to work for UFCW. So that's sort of what I do, the the networks that I've, the, the relationships and the networks that I still work in. I now represent UFCW in those networks, including we're a partner with the Organization for Competitive Markets is one of our collaborations. And so that's kind of one of the things I do is just try to bring the labor perspective to the progressive farm networks and local food movement networks around the country. And then, like I said, I think you mentioned in the in the bio, one of the first things that I did for UFCW was to be an advisor for my current boss, Mark Lawrenson, who's the head of the, the Food Processing, Manufacturing, and Processing Division, otherwise known as the Meatpacking Division of the United Food and Commercial Workers, on the uh, 2010 Justice Department USDA hearings. I think it's so interesting when you describe two groups of people who ordinarily you'd think would be at the opposite ends of the table come together and find common ground and work in a unified way. I mean, and that to me is the beauty of a union. And yet I find that there is so much union bashing, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems that of late there has been a push towards, say, right-to-work legislation and little ways to chip away at the strength of workers to come together and organize for basic rights that I think so many of us take for granted, like the weekends or sick leave, you know, things in the food industry that really matter. So you don't want a sick person, for example, preparing your food, but they would need to have sick leave and paid time off in order to get better before they came back working in that area. So what do you see happening culturally and sociologically in our country with regard to unions and union strength? Well, as you just heard from you and me both, that I actually, the beginning of my career was not in the union movement. So I'm not like a lifelong union activist. I came to it later in my life. And so 
I've learned a lot. I've been here for nine years in November. So I've learned a lot. And I think one of the lessons that I've learned is that a lot of people don't know all the things that a union does. And maybe that's one of the shortfalls of the unions. Maybe we haven't communicated that as well as we should have. And I think the corporations and the corporate leaders that oppose unions, I think they've done a good job of branding us with their message being that the only time you hear about the unions is when it comes to the contract renegotiations. And and so it's all about money and benefits. And in the meatpacking industry, what I learned really fast was that it's really those things are all important. Having a fair livelihood is certainly an important part of of a collective bargaining and being in a union. But in dangerous jobs like meatpacking, health and safety is a huge issue. And I know that so in UFCW, IBP basically did a good job of breaking the union back in the late 80s, not completely, but they closed a lot of union plants and lessened the amount of unionization in the meatpacking sector. It used to be that the meatpacking sector was as good of a manufacturing job as there was in the United States back in the 70s and 80s. And IBP came in as a disruptor and they didn't go head to head with the unions. The way they won basically was that they built state-of-the-art brand new plants in economically desperate rural communities rather than going in and trying to kick a union out and buy a plant from an existing company and then try to kick the union out. They just built new plants and kept the union out. And then they massively recruited immigrant labor from Mexico and around the world because immigrants are much uh, undocumented workers are easier to intimidate. They've got more to lose. They can just, you know, if you speak up, you can be deported. The, the employer could deport you. And they very skillfully used that approach to build these new state-of-the-art plants that were more efficient than the old plants. And basically what happened is a lot of those union plants shut down. But since then, we've actually clawed our way back, and we're at 71% union density, which means that in pork, for example, and so that means that of all of the pork produced in the United States, 71% of the pork produced is produced by workers that are protected by a union contract. And then in beef, we're at 62% union density, but in poultry, we're at 33% union density. And that's because poultry is in primarily in the right-to-work former slaveholding South, and it's really brutal organizing down there. There's a plantation culture there that's really hard to break through and to organize successfully down there. And so we've struggled with that. And one of the consequences of that lower density in poultry for unions is that we don't have the leverage that we have in pork and beef And so we're not able to have as strong a contract in poultry. So we don't have the leverage when only 33% of the plant are members of the union because it's a right-to-work state. There's not as big a threat of ultimately the biggest threat is to, you know, you could go out on strike. But if you only have 33% of the workers, that's not a viable threat really, you know. And so it's hard to get better contracts down there. And so back to my original point, so... In our best contracts in pork, we have provisions in there, for example, that if one of our stewards, so we have stewards who are trained on the front lines of the 
the slaughter lines and processing lines. They're trained and they know how to how fast the line's supposed to be going. And if they see that the manager may be trying, the line manager may be trying to creep that line speed up, they can actually, under the union contract, walk up to that manager and tell them to slow it down. Now, the manager can say no, but in the union contract, if the manager says no, the union can actually escalate that into binding arbitration. So the consequence of that is that 95% of the time they're going to slow down the line because that's going to cost them money because that means we would have to bring in our industrial engineers, they would have to bring in theirs, and you'd have a big fight and it would all end up before a federal arbitrator who would just impose a decision. So the company will just generally slow the line speed down. So you contrast that to some poor worker who's in a non-union plant in Alabama and is not protected by a union contract, if they walk up to the to the line manager and say, I think you're running the the line speed too fast, you know, they're gonna be fired. Now they're probably not they're not gonna be fired. It's illegal, technically illegal to fire them for doing that, but that's not what they'll fire them about. They'll find some other excuse to fire them and the deck is just stacked against workers in a non-union plant and especially in the South with the mentality down there. So to me, that was a really good lesson. And I think one of the things we got to do as unions is to do a better job of explaining the other things that a union contract does. Absolutely. Let me remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, and we are speaking with Mr. Dennis Olson. He is a senior research associate and policy analyst for the United Food and Commercial Workers International Union, where he advises the director of the Meatpacking Division on Food, Agriculture, and Trade Policies. Well, when I go to the grocery store, Mr. Olson, I would really like to be able to identify packages of meat where I know that that meat has come from a union shop so I can further support those companies that protect workers more so than others. Is there a label that I can look for? You know, there used to be a lot of labels on a lot of other things like for your t-shirt and, you know, basketballs and things like that. But it's been a while since there's been labels that'll actually tell you that the World Trade Organization actually struck down a U.S. law called country of origin labeling that that did require companies to put on their label which countries their meat comes from. And the big global meatpacking companies took that to the WTO and and got the governments of Mexico and Canada to file a complaint against the U.S. for our law that was passed by Congress, signed by the president, upheld by the U.S. courts. And you have a secret tribunal of WTO trade lawyers who ruled against the U.S. and said that we could not have country of origin labeling. And so that cleared the way for under WTO rules that Mexico and Canada could technically impose tariffs on some of our products and cost us money potentially. And so the Congress just blinked and repealed country of origin labeling. Now, we don't think... I think we folded too soon. We didn't need to just cave in like we did. But the industry had fought. They'd fought the passage of coal, which was originally passed in the 2002 Farm Bill, and they fought it every inch of the way. And they finally got – they couldn't overturn it in the courts in the U.S. They couldn't overturn it in Congress. But they were able to go to the secret tribunals of the WTO and get it overturned. And so that – 
is an example of why these trade agreements need to be reformed so that democratically elected governments can pass laws that protect the health and safety and provide crucial information to consumers and not be overruled by secret corporate tribunals. Exactly. And I always educate consumers about buying the best food possible for their families. And I can tell you that overall, consumers would like to know where their food comes from. So country of origin labeling is extremely important. I wanted to talk a little bit about your work with the Center for Good Food Purchasing, because I think it offers a promise to those of us who have a way to influence where our food comes from, to make sure that workers are protected, that animals are not abused, that the environment is not polluted, so that one big corporation can make a profit. Okay, I can do that. But let me just, before we leave the labeling issue, let me, uh, I did want to throw out one thing, which is something that people can do right now. Okay. And that is that the Organization for Competitive Markets and the American Grass-Fed Beef Association right now has a petition pending before the USDA's FSIS, the Food Safety Inspection Service, to reform what is called the product of USA label, which because cool has now been repealed, that's the only thing we have that tells consumers where their meat comes from, except that it doesn't. It's actually been corrupted by the meat industry to allow for imported beef to come into the country. And as long as it's processed here, they'll still count that as product of USA. Mm. And there's actually some suppliers, there's some meatpacking companies that are are listening to consumers and are working. I know that OCM has had these conversations with some of these companies And some of them would be open to doing a voluntary country of origin labeling, but their response is, why would we go to the expense of doing our own voluntary country of origin labeling when the USDA is just going to turn around and allow this imported beef to come in and that imported beef to get the same label, essentially a product of the USA. So that comment period is open. You can go to the OCM website and find it there. It's called the product of USA labeling under the Food Safety Inspection Service, and that comment period is open until August 17th, and people can go on there right now online and comment, submit comments to the FSIS that you want that to be reformed as the petition is asking for, which would say that this imported beef could not receive the product of USA label. So good. And we will provide some web links for people who want to sign that petition, Organization for Competitive Markets, and the American Grass-Fed Beef Association. We'll make sure to have links to those. So let's talk about more than that we can do. And would this be a good time to jump into the Center for Good Food Purchasing? Sure. Okay. Tell me about that. Well, the Good Food Purchasing Policy was created by the LA Food Policy Council, Los Angeles Food Policy Council, probably over four years ago now. They spent about three years, and what they did is they came up with five sustainability categories that include health and nutrition, valued workforce, local economies, animal welfare, and environmental sustainability. Those are the five categories. And so they got these five categories, and then they spent the bulk of the three years that they worked on it 
finding meaningful independent third-party certifications in each of those categories that along with other criteria but those are the the ones with the sort of the meat on it the teeth to it and so things like the organic label certified organic and their animal welfare things and then for us the highest certification for valued workforce for workers is a union contract. So that's why we made sure UFCW Local 770 in LA was at the table and made sure that labor was at the table and to get labor as one of the sustainability categories. We're actually put together with farmers as the valued workforce, so both are covered under that category. So that was passed by the LA School Board, and then it took about two years to get rolled into the procurement rules. And basically, the way it's supposed to work on paper, it it kind of turns out differently wherever, you know, it's now in about five cities, and it's actually being pushed in at least a dozen cities around the country. And so it's coming out a little different, but the way it turned out in L.A. is that, and I think the intent of it is that someone like a Tyson Food would apply for their $60 million chicken contract in L.A., and then they would claim any of those sustainability standards, uh, certifications in each of those categories. And if they were verified that they actually had those certifications, whether they had a union contract or had organically certified or no antibiotics ever is another one of them. So they get points for that. And so all else being equal, including the price, if a company gets a higher score on the GFPP score, then they should get the preference. And I say including the price because even with the good food policy, the way it turned out in the procurement rules in LA is 60% of the contract is still going to be determined by whoever has the lowest price. So this is the dilemma that, of course, we all face in trying to get good food is that everybody says that they want to get more good food, but nobody wants to pay for it. So it's still the low bid gets the bid. But if the bid is close or the same, if 20% of the contract, at least the way it turned out in LA, would be determined by the score on the GFPP scale. So all else being equal, including the price, the one who scored highest on the GFPP certification scoring, they would be the ones who would get the contract. They should get the preference for the contract. So that's how it's supposed to work. And so that's been rolled out successfully in LA. We ended up knocking Tyson and Pilgrim's Pride out of a $60 million chicken contract because basically they wouldn't show us the information, which was a glitch that we ended up running into of this issue of transparency. And when they refused to show us the bids and the scoring before they made the decision, the coalition just rallied and lobbied the school board to reject the bid, which was recommended by the procurement division within LAUSD. And we actually knocked them out and they ended up not getting the contract. So that was a pretty big victory right out of the chute. So that gave it a lot of momentum. And the core group of women that were the gurus on the procurement rules and so forth and on food policy in general, but sort of that core group of people in LA 
they then created the Center for Good Food Purchasing and spun that off as a national clearinghouse with two missions. Mainly, there's others, but the primary two missions that they do is to recreate these coalitions in other cities to pass the ordinance and implement the, the GFPP policy. And then the other thing that they do is that, like I mentioned, they're experts in procurement and were involved in the whole development of the procurement rules and stuff in L.A. So they're able to go in and talk to food service directors in these cities and kind of be a horse whisperer, right, and say, you know, they'll look these food service directors who, of course, are under a lot of pressure as far as their budget and everything, they may look at all of these standards and just throw up their hands and say, there's no way we could ever do that. And so these women are really great at going in and saying, no, no, you don't have to do it all at once. We're going to take you where you were at with a baseline assessment, and we're going to point you in the right direction. So the really nice thing about the policy is it's not designed to say either you're sustainable or you're not sustainable. It's designed to take the school district and even the companies where they're at now and say, okay, here's the things that you're scoring higher on in the scoring patterns here, and you're doing well on those, and here's where you might do better, and then here's where you're not doing as well in these other categories, and here's some recommendations on the low-hanging fruit of how you can improve your score. And so it's not either or, it's more of a path to greater sustainability, which of course, if you really think about sustainability, you never get to sustainability. There's always new information becoming available. So sustainability is a path. It's not a destination, right? So I kind of like that about the policy that it allows that kind of to take everybody where they're at and move forward from there. Well, I will make sure that we have a link to the Center for Good Food Purchasing so that other individuals and other school districts and other cities, they don't have to reinvent the wheel. They can see how, right. how do we make sure that our food does come from a place where there are fair labor standards and fair prices for farmers. Absolutely. We just have a couple of minutes left, and there's some work that you did that I didn't mention in your intro that I think is really terrific, and that was that you worked on a seven-year campaign culminating in Monsanto withdrawing its application to release genetically engineered wheat in North America. We just have a couple of minutes. What can you tell us about that victory? Well, it was a pretty amazing victory. It was farmers, environmentalists, consumers working really hard in the United States. And even farmers who were pro-GMO were ended up, there's a lot of the wheat farmers who came out against it because the really, the in the end, what really won it were the consumers in Japan and Europe where the Wheat Board and other entities had spent decades developing these markets. And basically, in the end, it was a Japanese delegation of consumers who went to the governors in five states in the northern tier where the hard red spring wheat was the subspecies that was being modified. And they had a petition signed with a million people from Japan saying if either the U.S. or Canada approved GE wheat, that the consumers would stop buying U.S. bread and wheat, any, any kind of products made with North American wheat because of NAFTA. Canada and U.S. aren't segregated anymore, so if one goes GMO, it's going to be contaminated. And they just said, we're not going to buy it. And it was within about a week of them meeting with all the governors of those five states as the culmination of this seven years of a great campaign at the grassroots level here in the United States. It was these international consumers 
who kind of drove it home. And that's when Monsanto withdrew their application was like within a week. All right. Delegation of Japanese consumers meeting with these governors of five states. You have proven to us that consumers have a voice. If only we organize and come together, we can truly make for a more sustainable food system. We must close. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Mr. Dennis Olson, Senior Research Associate and Policy Analyst for the United Food and Commercial Workers International Union. The website is www.ufcw.org. And to learn more about that Center for Good Food Purchasing, simply Google Center for Good Food Purchasing. And we'll provide a link to that as well. Thank you so much, Mr. Olson, for being my guest. Thank you for having me.